Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Adventure Science Podcast. I'm your host, Simon Donato, and we've got a fantastic interview coming up today. It's a little bit of a different subject in that we're going to be focusing on the social side of exploration and the human side of things. Uh, I'm really excited to have um, our interviewee, Dr. Kirsten Johnson, a medical doctor at McGill University, and she's also a professor teaching in the uh, School of Medicine at McGill. Her research is focused on the human side of conflict, primarily looking at gender-based violence and related social, physical, and psychosocial uh, phenomena of that. She's the CEO of Humanitarian U, and she's also a member of the Explorers Club. Without further ado, Kirsten, welcome to the podcast. Great to have you. Thank you very much, Simon. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, thank you. I could have gone on uh, tripping over all of your accolades and everything that you do, but I'm going to let you describe it more in detail as we get into the podcast. I'm excited to interview today because we're going to take a departure from where we normally go, which is really focusing on athletics and you know, solo endeavors in the field and uh, maybe more so on the, the biological, archaeological, paleontological side of things. Now we're focusing on the human side of exploration and what it means to get out into the field and, and into areas um, of crisis or were recently uh, unsafe areas to go and explore the world and see how the population is doing there. It's not something I have a lot of expertise in. So, I'm really excited to learn that from you. But before we dive into that, I know you've got an interesting background that has had you living in different spots around Canada. And, you know, how did you get an interest in exploration, uh, in, in medicine and science? Uh, we've, we've had a few interviewees uh, recently who have been females, and they, they've opened the door uh, for other females to get into the, the STEM area, science, technology, engineering, maths, which you know, need more female leaders there. And you're definitely one of those. So I'd love to learn a little bit more about your background. Uh, yes, thanks. Well, I'll be honest with you. It all started um, when I was nine and I watched Indiana Jones. And he was my big inspiration at the time. I really uh, wanted to get out there and explore from a very young age. And uh, when I was uh, 15, I left home and I ended up in Israel and uh, I lived on a kibbutz and it did an OPAN program for a year uh, where I did archaeology, but I soon learned that it was uh, not as exciting um, as what I saw in the movies, um, <laughs> a lot of, of dusting pottery shards uh, for hours in the hot sun. Mm -hmm. Anyways, it, it, was a, it was an interesting time and it certainly spurned my interest. And uh, uh, I, I then uh, traveled for several years and I ended up in uh, Nepal uh, working for a non-governmental organization called Helping Hands. And my job was to uh, organize uh, foreign medical teams, so teams from the United States basically coming to Nepal and servicing rural areas of the country. And, and it was that work, uh, amongst other travels, that really made me realize I wanted to have a skill set that would allow me to to continue to to have adventures and travel abroad, but also to give back uh, to those populations that need and and uh, to really provide them with something that they might not otherwise be able to access. I mean, just an anecdote is that, you know, it, it would take eight days for people to walk to the small clinic that we were at. Uh, and, uh, and, and, uh, even then they could only access very rudimentary care. So I was quite inspired by the doctors I was working with the Nepalese doctors and, mm -hmm. and, uh, and so I, I ended up, uh, doing, um, 
years of uh, postgraduate education, many more than I thought would be possible. <laughs> and and uh, I found myself at Harvard University where I did my master's in public health with a focus of, on international studies and, and development. And then I, I really got involved uh, in the humanitarian assistance side of things. And uh, I, I kind of groomed myself to be able to do that work by choosing emergency medicine because it makes me portable. I have a good skill set that uh, can take me into uh, conflict areas as well as I have a primary care background and with the public health and then a fellowship in uh, in, in humanitarian assistance that really has uh, uh, provided me with a skill set that I needed to embark on on that career that I chose so long ago. Interesting. Mm. Uh, you know, uh, Bill Gates gave a famous uh, address, I believe it was Stanford, and this is uh, probably close to a decade ago, but I remember it spread like wildfire by email and it was connecting the dots backwards. You know, you can't predict where you're going to get. You don't know how you're going to get there. You can set that goal, but, you know, you really don't know how your life's going to play out ahead of you unless you have a crystal ball. If you look back on your path, when you were a child, you knew you wanted to uh, be like Indiana Jones. What actually got you to that opportunity? Because, you know, as, as kids, most of us, just take the opportunities that are presented through school or or parents but it seemed like you might have uh, crafted some of your own opportunities to get you over to Israel to actually explore and and see if archaeology and and wearing the wide brim hat was uh, the future for you well, I've, you know, always been a bit of a self-starter from a very young age, as you recognized. And uh, um, so, you know, I, I, I worked, I, I had jobs, uh, I was a lifeguard and a swim instructor, and I was very goal-oriented, and I saved all my pennies, and that's, uh, <laughs> oh, and then wow. I went I was in Victoria, BC at the time, and uh, that's where my family is. And um, I had to take the ferry over to Vancouver because there was no Jewish community center, and I needed to go to a Jewish community center. I'm not Jewish, but to sign up for this Ulpan program. And um, even back then, when I arrived uh, in Israel, uh, when I was 16, they were like, what are you doing here? You're not Jewish. You're the you're youngest not- by far? I- you're not making Aliyah, like, I, we don't understand. <laughs> so um, I just have these ideas, these crazy ideas in my head, uh, like, that get me into some significant trouble. I I did uh, Marco Polo's northern route across the Silk Road through all the stands, and uh, that took me six months uh, on foot, camel, uh, car, uh, smuggled into the back of somebody's trunk across uh, Turkmenistan. <laughs> and when was I, that? Uh, that was... Uh, 10 years ago, I, I crossed India by myself on a motorbike for six months I, when I was 21. Uh, I've uh, traveled many places in the world, but it's that crazy sense of uh, adventure. And, and also, you know, the, there's the really, you can do what you put your mind to it, that combined with my, my interest in, in global health and, and in helping pop underserved populations that, um, you know, allowed me to have interesting uh, research um projects uh, where I, I go uh, solo into war-torn countries and be the first one to really cluster sample them and to come out with data that, you know, impacted policy and, and international law and uh, programs um, that are designed to really assist those those underserved populations. So I think it's a little bit of that, that combination of, of headstrong goal setting and, and but, uh, you know, dreaming and, and doing exciting adventures that, that keeps me going. Well, I can certainly relate to that. Uh, I find it interesting, though. You mentioned um, being headstrong, goal setting, but putting your mind to something and seeing it through. 
And, you know, a lot of us, we set goals, but we don't know how to get there. And you seem to have been doing it from a young age. Where I'm curious about your answer here is, you know, in, in my world, which is more focused on ultra endurance sports, everybody brands us as, you know, outliers. We're a little crazy to be wanting to do these things on our own. And to be honest, you end up with a very small peer group. And, you know, since such a young age, you've had these big goals and you've, you've chased them down and you've, you've achieved them. What's that like in terms of socializing with others? What's your, what's your peer group like? Do you find people to travel with? Do you do most of the stuff on your own? I think it's interesting for people to, to understand a little better, uh, you know, some of the sacrifices or maybe they're not sacrifices that we make to chase what we love. Sure. I mean, you know, going to into medicine needs some years of, of undergraduate education and so on. And I always felt a little bit like I was a loner in university and that uh, I, you know, and even in medical school and residency as well, um, because I was very new, the path that I, I was forging. And now there's more set paths. And, and certainly through my organization, Humanitarian U, we actually train professional humanitarian responders to go in the field. And, and I'm a leader in that sense, uh, in that nobody's ever really uh, brought together competency-based, uh, uh, you know, adult education uh, and, and, and standards for, for training um, people so that they're ready to go to the field, um, no matter what professional background they have. But, uh, you know, um, suffice to say, I think that uh, it wasn't until I got to Harvard uh, University. And I, I really, I did, I, I was so fortunate because, uh, it was kind of the perfect storm in that, um, this, uh, mentor of mine, uh, Dr. Michael Van Royen came from Johns Hopkins and met up with, uh, Jennifer Leaning, who is a very kind of the grandmother of humanitarianism, I guess, on some level in an academic stance at least. And the two of them, um, came together to create the, this Harvard Humanitarian Initiative, and it brought together a group of us um, who were very bent on that area. And and, and in terms of, um, you know, uh, it, it really became my church. I mean, finally, I met the people that that were the same as me and, and were driven and had, had these crazy goals, but also dreams and, and um and uh, really, you know, we're hardworking, uh, but uh, so much fun. I, I get, you know, we're kind of a funny bunch. You know, we're a bit eclectic and from different backgrounds. All of us were emergency medicine doctors for the most part. Um, so we practiced emergency medicine because it allowed us to kind of cluster shifts and then take off for the rest of the time. And uh, then we cultivated a group of us because as we went through this, we, we developed this initiative and then we would bring in more fellows and we would train other people up. And so now there's um, a really wonderful community of us, but we're all at different universities, uh, Denver, Chicago, uh, Harvard, Hopkins, um, Yale, Brown, Stanford. And, um, but we've created our own shops and we all kind of still collaborate with each other. And uh, for example, I'm, I'm the um, <laughs> incoming president for the Canadian Association of Emergency Physicians. I start in May and we're doing a really neat project across Canada to look at how we improve international emergency medicine from a Canadian context, but also how we build that into our departments at our hospitals. And because of this network that I have, I can pull together 
uh, all these the main players in Canada that do the global health, even though we're at different universities. So it's um it's really been a it was a real stepping stone that was so essential for me in my career. And that's what I tell people who are going to go do graduate studies. You know, really pick the university that that's going to give you those networks that you need to to give yourself that leg up. And I took advantage of every minute I was at Harvard. It was such a wonderful experience. And I really was so fortunate to, to go there and then to be able to continue on and do a fellowship and then to be part of that initial uh, initiative. And then I came back to McGill, actually, and built the same program that I helped to build at Harvard and um, developed uh, academic programs, educational initiatives from that. I was the one that uh, sort of was the, the one of the key persons that uh, developed the, uh, the simulation style of, edu- of training that we, we offer. And then since then, I've, I've created my own organization called Humanitarian U, and we train organizations all over the world from the UN to World Health Organization to not-for-profits and in fact we're just uh, starting up a center of excellence in Washington DC with Harvard and Hopkins uh, and Project Hope to train people in in disaster and humanitarian response. So let's talk a little bit about humanitarian you then. What what exactly do you offer? Is it open to the general public? Do you have to be uh, an MD to uh, to be part of the program? Yeah, no, not at all. And uh, that's what I don't think people really understand. I mean, I should, there's a caveat, and that is that that medical tourism is a thing of the past. And so uh, just, you know, going back to 2010, after the uh, earthquake in Haiti, we saw one of, you know, well, there's been several over the years, but a a terrible humanitarian catastrophe from the humanitarian perspective in that over 3,000 organizations responded to that earthquake. And uh, for the most part, uh, you know, responders were under the age of 30. It was their first mission. They had no clue what they were doing. Uh, they impeded effective aid from getting to where it needed to get to. Uh, we, saw, we saw things like field amputations being done because there was massive need for orthopedic uh, um, uh, surgeons. It was uh, after an earthquake, we, we, we know that there's going to be a lot of orthopedic injuries. And uh, there was residents doing field amputations for their first time with no anesthetic, with no proper field hospital, uh, uh, you know, um, setups uh, at all. It was it was. And so from that, there was an outcry and the from the humanitarian community and the World Health Organization said, you know, that this will never happen again. And uh, from that, something called the Emergency Medical Teams Initiative was born, where if any hospital or group wants to send uh, frontline emergency teams into a disaster setting, uh, they actually have to be invited and they have to be validated through the World Health Organization's EMT initiative. So you can't just go in and do this anymore. Um, so, so, you know, so humanitarian, humanitarian U is tied to the WHO then? Well, yes. I mean, uh, and I, I mean, they, I'd get a slap on the wrist for saying we're tied to them because they don't tie themselves to any organization in, in particular. But we do, we have worked with them and we continue to do so in terms of improving standardized training for professionals. And, you know, you can be a doctor, you can be a financier, you can be a teacher, you can be a security specialist. It doesn't matter what your professional background is. When you are in that operating theater of a disaster or a humanitarian response, meaning 
conflict, we all have to talk the same language because we're all in that same theater together trying to provide the best level of care we can to the affected population, to the beneficiaries. And we do that with human rights and dignity and so on. But, you know, for example, if I'm setting up a field hospital, and I just give that example because I'm from a medical background, I need to make sure that there's enough water so we know from standards, from science and from, from the evidence base that we've collected over the years that you need at least a minimum of 50 liters per person uh, water a day for a field hospital. So if I have 50 liters, that's a lot of that's, water. That's in a field hospital. If you're talking about individual needs, it's 15. But if I'm, if you're, okay, so if you're setting up a refugee camp and you have uh, 30,000 people in your camp, you know that you at least, that's the minimum. So you're trying to achieve the minimum, it's preferable to go over, that you need 15 liters per person for water a day. So you could be the health person at the refugee camp, but you still have to work with the people doing water and sanitation, logistics, um, you know, uh, uh, camp management, um, and all the rest. So it's a team effort, and that's what that's what the, the training offers is really that how do we work as a team with the different backgrounds we come from to be able to provide an effective response. Interesting. Well, yeah. let, let's talk about some of those um, disaster-areas or the areas of crisis that you've visited. I mean, I, I know that you've been to well over 100 countries. You've, you've seen more of the world than uh, most of us combined will, which is very impressive, but you've chosen to do a lot of work in Africa and you know, what has drawn you there in particular? Well, I mean, I go where the need is greatest. Um, so I've also, I spent a lot of my earlier career in, in Southeast Asia, I, but um, suffice to say that, you know, we've seen most of the world's conflicts, unfortunately roll out uh, after the cold war, you know, the end of the 1990s, uh, much of Africa was, was uh, there's, you know, it was all proxy kind of uh, a warfare that we saw roll out. And so uh, after the, the, the cold war, a lot of that, uh, those power structures ended. And, and so there was a lot of, sort of this conflict that uh, came came to pass and and uh you know is still going on in countries like south sudan and sudan and and certainly around the congo and and burundi and and all the rest so uh i i went where the need was greatest and so i, I my my first uh, big work was with the physicians for human rights and we were working in well we were one of the first people actually to go into darfur and to actually see the impact of the, the genocide there, we found uh, 30,000 people clustered in the desert on the border of uh, Chad uh, with nothing to eat in, in temperatures as you know, high as 50 degrees Celsius, wow. uh, with no shelter. And uh, then we subsequently launched into a three-year project looking at one of the uh, five parts of the genocide convention, and that is the destruction of livelihoods and how that can actually effectuate genocide on a population because those people had were so dependent on their their ability to survive in that harsh landscape because by virtue of the livelihoods that they had eked out, um, you know, they could cultivate some few vegetables. They needed their cattle, their camels, and their donkeys um, because if they didn't, that's they didn't have anything to live off of. So, you know, destroying their livelihoods and destroying their, their small little dwellings and, and community structures uh, effectively uh, ensured that these people would would die. So we found them in the desert, and and then we started to work with uh, other organizations to to do this work. And then you know from there, uh, I got into this whole uh, interesting methodology called cluster sampling, 
which uh, kind of uh, was one of the first people to go and do on a on a huge level, on a countrywide level. And I think I mentioned to that to you. I can talk a little bit more about that, or or we can change topics, whatever you think. Well, uh, maybe before we get into that, I'd, I'd like to know what it's like to travel and you know hit the ground ready to deal with whatever you're going to find in a country that's just undergone something as, as violent and as vicious as what you've just described. I mean, I, I don't think any of us, us could fathom it. Well, I, I, you could. I, you say you do ultra sports, ultra mar- I assume ultra marathons. And, and I mean, I couldn't fathom doing that. You, you have to prepare. You have to think through things. Like you can't, it's not something you can kind of do off the cuff, you know, last minute. You have to have uh, communications. You have to think about satellite phones in some of these places. You have to think about, uh, you know, uh, having everything. You can't, you know, it, when we were in, in, in Chad and Sudan, there was no no food really for to even to feed the relief workers. Um, so in Haiti, we had to bring our own tents and sleeping bags. And uh, so you kind of, you really have to think through these things. You have to be prepared. It's funny, you know, in our training at the Humanitarian U, we we do simulation-based training, so we go into um, a field-like setting and we recreate a complex humanitarian emergency with actors and faculty and all sorts of specialists um, for three days, and we subject uh, people to very stressful situations um, so that we can kind of get them to, to sort of feel what it might be like in such an environment and to know how they might feel so that they can kind of predict how they, they react and, uh, you know, inevitably the first night somebody says, I can't do this because I can't use an outhouse or go to the bathroom in the woods. Right. And they're shocked that they have to do that. <laughs> so they go home, which is almost better than, you know, having them deploy and figure that out for the first time in the field. So, um, you know, we, we do a lot of intel. We certainly talk to a lot of uh, people before we go. Uh, when I was cluster sampling the Congo and I was sending out my teams into very rural parts of the country, I had met with lots of, you know, heads of different organizations to make sure that there was security in place, so we knew the routes. Right. Um, right. You know, so it's, uh, we went into uh, Uganda. There's a failed part of Uganda called Karamoja. I think it's probably improving now, but it was a failed state with renegade, you know, gun runners and cattle hustlers and the whole thing. And we did a we did a uh, caravan to do an assessment way deep into Karamoja. And, you know, we, we, we had planned the route and, you know, had spare tires and food and, and, the, you know what I mean? You, ha- you, you kind of, you got, it's not something that you just kind of do off the cuff. So suffice to say, there's, there's a fair amount of planning when you, when you go into some of these countries too, to do, to do data uh, collection, there are no photocopiers. So I log in 8,000 paper surveys sometimes. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, in suitcases. Oh, yes. I mean, you know, and if there's a mistake on one of the surveys, you have to hand correct them all because there's no photocopiers. So you have to think a lot of this stuff. And and, in, and there's no ATMs in Congo. So you have to take in all your own money. You have to smuggle that in somehow in your underwear. I mean, I, I went into Liberia with $20,000 cash on my person through the airport, which was just basically like an air hanger with a lot of militia hanging out around. And you're sweating bullets the whole time or not too concerned? And I was, and I was seven months pregnant. Oh, really? Well, there you go. <laughs> oh, my goodness. That makes it a little more exciting. Yeah. Well, certainly for the dad who was sitting at home and does. <laughs> you didn't come over there as a bodyguard for you, huh? No. Oh, jeez. 
Well, I mean, that's that's all part of the adventure, right? But as you mentioned, the more the more you do it, um, the better prepared you are for it, the more yeah. confident and, and comfortable you'll be with these projects. And I mean, I, I've been down that road for everything from ultra races to the projects we do where we are working in remote areas and we're self-supported. And if somebody gets hurt, uh, we have to have a plan to get them out of there or at least stabilize them until help can arrive. And you know, so it's it's all scalable. What I've realized, um, really through doing these podcasts with so many interesting um, people like yourself, is that we all operate under the same general rules tailored to you know our specific needs, but the the fundamentals are all the same and they're all scalable. Um, you know, I'm sure things for you change depending on how soon you'll enter a region to provide aid. Or, you know, begin the research process to after the conflict or the disaster or the crisis has ended. And, you know, it is going to affect how well you're able to prepare. Although now with humanitarian you, I, I know it's the canned isn't the right word, but, you know, you're already bringing over a better prepared team. You already have the, the program in place and can probably be more adaptable should the need arise very quickly or, or come out of the blue. Do you deal with situations like that? Uh, sorry, can you just explain? I, I don't know if I understood completely your question. Um, do I deal with uh, well, in terms of having to change around what we're offering or the, the situation on the ground? If you could just clarify. Sure. It's, it's really the, the timing of your entry into an area. So, you know, for Haiti, for example, um, as you were describing, you know, the, the earthquake hits, there's people in need right now and will your team be deployed immediately or are you going to go down a week or two after you've had a chance to gather information and really pull the right pieces together to be more effective or do you have to be a little bit adaptive on the ground um right there's more immediacy well i mean you know there's two phases of uh disaster response there's the really the acute phase and then there's the kind of the long more long chronic phase and for the very acute phase like For the first, you know, uh, 24 to 48 to 72 hours, normally the the organizations or the people that respond are very highly trained individuals. You don't send somebody in uh, to that situation who doesn't know what they're doing because um, it's the it's the it's the most important time to really be able to do a fast uh, what we call a, a needs assessment, but it's it's a rapid needs assessment. So generally, multidisciplinary teams are sent in, um, and those teams uh, work together to triangulate and collect as much information on the ground as possible, so that they're that, that they can design then uh, kind of a, an initial uh, response for their organization, and they attach a budget to that, which goes to the UN, uh, who does a flash appeal, so that those organizations can start their work. Immediately, the, the World Health Organization, the EMT initiative, uh, mandates that all all medical organizations coming in actually can be deployed and have their entire field hospital set up within 24 hours because that's when the need is so great. So, you know, if I'm part of that kind of a, a response or initiative, I'm all I'm on call for that. Like, I'm aware that I could be deployed to something like that okay. within 24 to 48 hours. So, um, you know, that's a different level of preparedness because you've got your bag packed already you've got all your immunizations you've got your passport it's not you know it's it's got you know six months on the end of it it's not not ready to expire and you've got backup for you know child care or family needs or, or whatever that is sure. so um the, that that kind of a response looks a little bit different now if we're preparing to do 
a study or we're going to go in and do some sort of a project, generally there's more lead time. I mean, you know, it could be a few weeks, but generally, you, you know, and certainly, I mean, doing research in these uh, settings is, uh, is very challenging because they're so dynamic and right. The, right. the research need is right away, but it's always difficult to find that funding right away. And the funding structures that are in place don't always match, uh, you know, the, the need and, and what has to happen on the ground. It's, it's, it's really crazy. Uh, how that works? Well, let's let's talk a little bit more about the uh, the research. So you you've uh, started discussing the cluster analysis that you were pioneering. Uh, let's dive into that a little bit more and, and learn well what it is for starters, what uh, variables you're after, and what some of the results have been. Yeah. So it's um it's uh, really it's a really cool you know that's what I love about research in the humanitarian sector is it's all pioneering you know and and it's not classic, you know, randomized controlled trials, because we don't have uh, a phone book of names and where they live, and we can pick every 10th person, and we can really make it randomized. But, right. you know, so we've come up with some creative ways and strategies of, 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 of actually randomizing populations in a dynamic environment with very little data in terms of mapping or lists or anything like that. And, and so this method is called a, what I, we use is called a cluster sample surveys. And um, it's a, it's a two by two sort of a framework so um, we can use um, anything from aerial photography to rudimentary maps but uh, we take a population as a whole and uh, we, we cluster it down so that we have little pockets that are distributed according or based on uh, population size I'll just give you an example for example in Liberia there's three million people in that entire country but we know one one million of them lives in Monrovia which is the capital so Monrovia is going to to have more clusters that we will sample than the rest of the country. Although it's important that we get to all of those places in the country because we want to hear everybody's voice. So, uh, so, um, but you can imagine if you're clustering a country like Liberia, which has three million, or a cluster, you're clustering a country like Kenya, which you know uh, has many, many more million, then the numbers get crazy. I mean, uh, we were doing a ninety by 10 cluster in uh, Kenya. So we had to get to 90 locations all across Kenya to uh, actually satisfy the sample framework that we had set up for that country. And if you don't, then it screws up your data. So uh, when we were in the Congo doing this, that meant that sometimes my data collectors would have to go in dugout canoes and in mopeds and in really? who knows help and walk for 10 days just to get to the village that we randomly selected because that was the village that we selected so it's very arduous work but uh it's certainly interesting it takes you to some very faraway places and you know in liberia just because we did this post-conflict exactly when the conflict ended after 30 years some of the villages that we had selected were not there anymore because they were destroyed so then we had to have a way to get to the next closest village assuming that the people who had lived in the bombed out village moved to the closest village. But, you know, it's again, it's a very dynamic setting. And then if you're looking at including refugee camps, then you've got maybe a different population because they're more affected by things like, you know, human rights violations and so on. So you have to consider these vulnerable populations as a bit different. But uh, suffice to say, what it gives you then is data or information on the population that is then generalizable to the entire population as a whole. And what's interesting about that is that you can then say, well, if 
you know, 10% of the population is suffering from this, then we can think about putting in this measure. We found in Liberia that a third of the entire population, so a million, were actually involved in direct combat in the war. And that a quarter of those, a quarter to a half, were children. And that there is a huge need for uh, uh, programs. Potentially 250,000 of the combatants were under the age of 18 or 16? 15. 15. Yes. Wow. And, and you know, so, so and this is a lot of the, the first data that was ever really published on child soldiers uh, that we could actually make these kinds of, you know, generalized statements to, about because of the method that we that we used. Uh, and um, but it showed that, for example, the United Nations, when uh, a war ends and a peace treaty is signed, then they are part of the, the, the whole peace process is that they go in and they do something called uh, disarmament, uh, uh, reintegration and rehabilitation, DRR programming. But their programming only targets people who are over the age of 18 because they give them some cash cash money and they give them some opportunities to sort of reintegrate themselves in exchange for their weapons. Mm-hmm. So, but those mm-hmm. kids, they have been fighting like adults. I mean, they considered themselves, I mean, they left home when they were five or six or they got abducted or whatever. They had children in the field. They killed and shot people. They took drugs. They did whatever they did. They're living in groups together for survival because they couldn't qualify for this programming from the UN. So they were really uh, forced back into uh, uh, recidivism in terms of getting into gangs and problems. In Congo, these children too were put into then jail with adults. So they weren't segregated and treated uh, you know, in, in a special way because they were children and they were exposed to more violence and, 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 and sex, uh, uh, you know, uh, sexual violence and also uh, human trafficking. Um, and so, so they're then- either not considered part of the equation and ignored, or they're just lumped in and not treated as a, a separate uh, demographic group that required special consideration. Vulnerable, huh? Right. And I mean, certainly, so we worked to change some of that. Uh, and then we knew also from our, our work in Liberia that actually men and boys, because no programming in terms of gender-based violence programming was targeted targeted to them, they had much worse mental health outcomes. I mean, just at baseline, not because no programming was targeted to them, but so a good proportion of those men and boys had been victim to sexual violence. And I won't get into the details, but those boys and men that had had that perpetrated uh, were much more prone to uh, depression and suicide. And and so, but there was no programming uh, for them because all gender-based violence programming at the time uh, was directed only to, to women and girls. So um, we 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 actually followed up on this finding, and, and we did it. Uh, we studied it in in the Congo when we were there in the DRC, and uh, found that in fact women were perpetrating a good part of that violence, and that women weren't. Uh, uh, you know, excluded from from being perpetrators. So interesting findings that ended up changing uh, policy and programming globally, um, and uh, you know that that kind of got to that upper level. That uh, and, and in fact, I was involved in, in drafting the first mental health policy in Liberia subsequent to this research that was integrated into their health policy, and that was one of the first countries in Africa to actually have a mental health policy. Well, that's fascinating, and. I mean, it's it's a little bit shocking to me that this research hadn't been done before. I mean, crisis isn't isn't a new thing, nor is research. But you know, the fact that you've you've conducted so many groundbreaking uh, projects over the past decade plus, 
and you're really changing policy. I mean, that's that's incredible, um, especially with just you know what you were talking about with sexual violence there. Um, you know, females being perpetrators as well as males. Again, it's just it's a foreign concept to me. I would never have expected that. Right. Well, I mean, you know, and the land there's a landmark uh, trial after the Rwandan genocide where they had a, a woman that was actually convicted for for rape and and she ordered the rape of uh, thousands of of women and and men by male soldiers for the most part. But you know, uh, and she was convicted. But the 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 uh, in, in the DRC at any one time there was over thirty seven or fifty even warring factions and different groups. I mean, there. The Mai Mai's are very interesting because uh, it's hard to know what their their mandate is, but there's a lot of child soldiers in the Mai Mai uh, tribes um, that fight. And um, when uh, a man uh, rapes a woman as part of uh, a war effort, then he has to go into a, a cleansing ritual for three days. So then there is nobody to as a you know reinforcement to to continue the raping. So then the women uh, come in and do it. Um, you know, so it, it, there's there, it's it's really crazy once you start to look into the pathologies of all of this and how yeah, this okay. happened and the details but this is some, you know what some of our evidence shows uh because we would ask uh, men men would say oh i got pregnant uh uh or we would find that you know x number of people were pregnant from the rapes uh but then we would uh look at the data and it would show that it was men and then we'd have to look at the qualitative data to understand why that was if it was a mistake in our surveys or if it was something that was um you know backed up and the men would say well uh, um, you know, uh, I was raped by this woman and then she got pregnant and then she came to me and said, you have to support me now. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. That's the one that makes you look at the results a few times to make yeah. sure that, uh, yeah. they're, they're accurate. So let me ask you a question then about accessibility because you're, you're in these remote areas. Um, you know, there's still probably negative sentiments about other ethnic groups within the areas. I can imagine it's still unstable to a large degree, but it's important to go to these outlying communities, as you've identified, which may or may not be there, depending on how things have changed. And what what are the big differences you've seen from, you know, these, these more rural, remote outlying communities to maybe more of the populated regions, metropolitan, cosmopolitan areas, is there a vast difference in the psychology of the, the people who live there? Are they more perhaps archaic in their cultural beliefs versus a more populated region, or is it completely different? No, I mean, I think that that's not something of the past when we used to read about, you know, ethnographies from famous anthropologists in the 50s. You know, most of the world's population by 2050, by 2030 even, 80%, they say, of the world's population will be urban. And so more rural people than ever are coming into to urban areas. And unfortunately, the majority of those mega cities that we're going to see uh, uh, build are slums. And it's because many of these people from the rural populations who are coming to live in the cities looking for opportunities um, you know, don't have uh, the skills and the means and the resources. Um, so so more and more we're seeing uh, really, you know, this integration of these uneducated, potentially uh, rural communities um, coming into cities and, and less of these, these far-flung small uh, villages. But, I mean, suffice it to say is uh, 
I, I must I must admit that uh, for my research, because I would I mean I would skew the data if if they saw a white blonde Western woman you know <laughs> crumbing into their village when they have never seen a Westerner uh, in the heart you know deep in the heart of the Democratic Republic of Congo. Uh, it would be hard to get uh, the the data we need. So I, I do a lot of training and I build capacity by uh, hiring local locals and 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 training them not only on on survey methodologies but on on the the cluster sampling methods and so on. And then I even include them in the publications so that they get their names published. So um, so it's it's local providers that speak the local dialects because um, that's the other thing is many of those villagers they don't speak any English and it would take me hours as a translator so uh so um you know it's very locally it, it, we, we partner with local organizations we work with locals and uh and we build capacity that way to try and also avoid bias well it's a uh, it's a big challenge that you're up against but you're making incredible headway um you know we we try and uh do do what feels right for us in this world, life is short, as I'm sure you've uh, definitely can appreciate. But you know, what is it about helping people and getting into the humanitarian side that just resonates so much with you? What what keeps you pushing on against uh, the challenges that you undoubtedly face? Well, maybe this is a bit Pollyanna, but I mean, I, I believe we're all the same. I mean, I meet people around the world and. We still we laugh together. We share human moments, and there's a, a real humanity. And I am super lucky. I don't even there's not one day that doesn't go by that I, I reflect on how lucky I am to be born in Canada. We really are at the top of the pile. We have anything and everything we need and want and security uh, for our children to go to school or not be shot (laughs) you know uh, we don't have war we don't we can get uh, any kind of food we want so um i i i believe i have to give back and you know what comes around goes around and that's how the world works and and uh so and it's and it's always enriches my life when i do that kind of thing or it changes my perspective or it shifts me into something a new different way of thinking you know uh after working in kenya uh i i, I looked at the post-election violence from the 2007-2008 election there's a massive spike i don't know if you remember uh but it was a tribal kind of and, and so i went there and and uh subsequent to that i met a wonderful woman named flora Terra. Uh, who was brought as a an asylum seeker, a political asylum seeker, to our country by the Stephen Lewis Foundation in our government because she was running for a position within the presidential campaign, and and uh, they executed her son and they they uh, they tortured her, and so uh, she came to live with me for a year, I guess, I, when she first came to Canada, and she was from a small town in Meru on the uh, from the Mount Meru region there on the base of the mountain in, in the middle of Kenya. But, you know, her her and I had this same sense of humor. Somehow, I don't know, it's, you know, even though she thought when I was buying a turkey for Thanksgiving, I was buying a flamingo, we still, <laughs> we, 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 we still laughed. We still laughed at the same jokes. So how is that? You know, and how is it that we can share uh, all of our experiences despite being from, you know, completely opposite places of the world? And right. she loves my son like her own son. So, you know... Um, why I, I just I, I think that it's uh, the world's an amazing place and the people in it are super amazing so it's kind of what I'm just I'm still interested. 
Well, that's fantastic, and it's very inspiring work that you do. Um, you've got me interested in an area that I'm not very familiar with, but uh, I'm definitely more interested in, in looking at what opportunities <laughs> might, no, seriously, might be available for Great. You know, those who are on perhaps the sharp end of adventure and exploration. I mean, through Adventure Science, we pair researchers like yourself with really high-capacity high athletes. And uh, I mean, you've described it through humanitarian you, you don't necessarily need to be an academic expert to be really, really useful in the field. And I mean, I, I've trained people on how to be observational paleontologists. And we had a project in Madagascar where, you know, I spent many years in school as a paleontologist studying to be a paleontologist. And I stepped over a dinosaur track, looked at it, didn't look like what I was familiar with in the, in the literature, kept going. It was an engineer who had never seen a dinosaur track before, who stopped me, asked if we could take another look. Turns out it was um, the most northerly known dinosaur trackway in Madagascar. So, you know, I, I, I just find there's so many synergies. It doesn't matter whether um, your research is more focused in, in one area of sciences or social sciences. There's so many ways to tie it together, especially when you have to travel and, and work in the field for it. So I... That's why I'm, I'm really interested in, you know, my brain's going like, geez, I wonder if we could help out here. But, right. you know, it's, it's been a wonderful call and uh, I'm really grateful that you've, uh, you've joined me today. But I want to end with uh, a question for you, put you on the spot a little bit here. I ask everybody on the podcast, what is a mantra that you live by or that, that drives you in what you do? Oh, well, I mean, it's so cliché. <laughs> it, it, it sees the day, I guess. Uh, you know, there's so many mantras that that speak to me. The uh, Dalai Lama has many that I've thought about or reflected on in the years. But uh, for me, it's you know, it, and I, I have to admit that part of it is because I am an emergency doctor working in in the big cancer center in Montreal, and I see such devastating uh, tragedies with young people who are so sick. And I just think, you know, I've got my health and uh, there's the world's such an amazing place. And, and I, my, my cup is always half full and, and I just, I want my, my, my son to, to know that and to have, you know, seek out all the opportunities he, he needs and wants and just uh, to, to continue on and meet people like yourself and the other explorers in the club. And you sure you want your son to be an ultra runner. I don't know. You should, probably read you, know, the, uh, you should probably read the physiology papers before you make, make your mind happy. up. <laughs> Makes him happy. I mean, you guys are a crazy bunch, but but uh, certainly, I mean, interesting bunch. Did you? I guess you. Do you know the guy who rescued the little dog in Mongolia? Uh, I haven't read the book, but uh, one of Jim Mandeli, has been on many adventure science projects. He had that uh, book, Gobi, I believe uh, yeah. was the title. And, yeah. and I, I read a book recently about a dog that was rescued in Costa Rica, uh, yeah. written by a Swedish adventure racer. And this dog joined them uh, um, probably halfway through an adventure race. So, yeah, the power of animals as well to uplift us. Uh, incredible. Yeah. yeah, that's wonderful. Uh, yeah. Well, thanks again. I uh, wish you all the best with uh, your future endeavors and your, your research. Do you have any trips um, that are imminently pending? Yes, in two weeks. It's a personal trip. I'm going to attempt a winter ascent of Mount Rainier. Wow, uh, excellent. Yes, and then uh, I'm training to do uh, Denali and Vincent Massif as well. I'm hoping for both, but we'll see how that goes. 
Well, if you want any beta on either one, uh, I've got a couple of good buddies who, within the last two years, have done both Rainier and uh, Jason did Denali uh, last summer. So happy to okay. put okay. you in touch with them. There you go. I'll reach out. Thank you. Cool. Cool. Well, Kirsten, thanks. Thanks again. It's really been a, a treat having you on the podcast. And that's that's about it. Thank you Hopefully. so much. Pleasure yeah. is mine. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this week's edition of the Adventure Science Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about Adventure Science, you can visit us online at www.adventurescience.com. You can find us in the social media realm at adventure underscore sci for Instagram and Twitter, or you can find us on Facebook at Adventure Science. Technical assistance for the Adventure Science Podcast is provided by Olivier Hubert Benoit, and Adventure Science wishes to thank its sponsors for making this possible. Merrill, Farm to Feet, Stoked Oats, Suto, Canada Satellite, and Earthcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time.